Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Cracking Podcast, Phil. You found the Bystander Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by support from Manscaped.com, the precision tool for your family jewels, free shipping, and 20% off when you use the code TINY in checkout. Also, additional support comes from BI Hoops and Sound Reaper Graphics. Today's conversation comes from Town Hall Seattle in its Arts and Cultural Series. It was recorded Thursday, January 30th at the Forum. Today, our panel talks about exploring the role of poetry as it stokes our curiosity and gives voice and attention to the human experience. Today's podcast is Lyric World Discussion. Welcome to Lyric World, a new poetry series created in partnership with Town Hall and KUOW. As a curator of Lyric World, I wanted to create a series that could focus on the social role of poetry, how poetry can be relevant to our everyday lives and its power to provoke deeper conversations on matters of being human together. Lyric World is a three-part series with programs scheduled in March and June. Throughout this season, we'll hear poets talk about poetry's place in creating a sense of home and belonging, how poetry can play a role in working through complicated grief, and our theme tonight, poetry and the intersection of magic or wonder. 
I chose wonder as a topic to launch this series because we live in politically and socially fraught times when we need to be able to contemplate other ways of being in the world, to remember that we each have access to the wonders of the human experience and that the line between the sacred and the mundane is something we can reimagine. Each program in Lyric World will include a presentation by a poet with connections to this region in conversation with a poetic peer from the community. We'll also host musical guests as part of each program who will reflect on our themes through their performances. In this season of Lyric World, we're proud to present a series of Asian American poets who are presenting their work for town hall audiences for the first time. Our series is supported by the Windrose Fund, Poets and Writers, the City of Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture, and many individual donors. KUOW will record tonight's program and distribute it through its Speakers Forum program. I believe one of the purposes of art is to help us recognize things as they are. A genuine poem returns us to the world with greater reverence for its life, however fleeting and brief, and with greater reverence for good words, which though fleeting and brief themselves, help honor and reverence the world. These are words written by Thomas Hitoshi Pruixma, an author, poet, translator, teacher, magician, and musician. Thomas was born in Seattle and has lived and worked in Tamil Nadu, India, and Oaxaca, Mexico. His first book of poems, The Safety of Edges, was published by the artist Galen Garwood's Marrowstone Press in 2019. Other titles include Give, Eat, and Live, Poems of Avayar, and Body and Earth, Notes from a Conversation. He is, he is currently completing translations of the Tamil classic of poetry and philosophy, Tiruvalluvar's Tudukural, and of Juan Rulfo's masterpiece, Pedro Paramo. Thomas also performs nationally and internationally, combining poetry, story, magic, and song in presentations. His solo shows include A Thousand Thanks, The Gift of Sadako, and Cranes, and By Heart, A Celebration of Words, Magic, and Memory. His two-person shows include The Driftwood Bridge, which recently premiered at the Vashon Center for the Arts. Last summer, I had the pleasure of being in the audience for the book launch of Thomas's debut collection, The Safety of Edges. At that event, he read from a page of poetry an address to the city Seattle Council on how we build a city that can be a safe refuge for all. He tore up the page before our eyes and reassembled the shreds of paper into a seamless whole by the end of his recitation. It was nothing short of remarkable. In Body and Earth, Thomas asked the question of how to maintain the proper tension between our, our ideas about the world and the world itself. It may be useful, for instance, to know certain theories about the structure of a tree, how it holds the soil together, how it puts forth leaves, how it carries water to its crown. But this knowledge is something different from the ability to stand in the tree's presence, to encounter it directly and be encountered. To listen to Thomas's poems is to encounter the human, a liveliness that we can recognize in ourselves, the curiosity and desire to examine the notion of what can be known. Please welcome Thomas Pruixma. A beginning. Poems are invisible, like people. We see each other's faces, our appearance in the world, but we are all far more than we appear. 
all far more than can ever disappear. Just as a poem trapped in a cage, trapped in a book on a page of language, isn't yet fully a poem, cannot yet speak to our hearts. For what frees the poem, bird of the spirit, thing with feathers beyond what we see, is our true desire to hear all it says about you and you and you and me. So say it out loud, alone and with friends. Get it by heart before the song ends. Listen with love, which alone lets it be free of all cages, free, free, free. At least that's how it seems to me. Thank you. I am delighted and honored to be here at Town Hall Seattle speaking about poetry and wonder. Because I believe that wonder is at the root of our capacity for reverence, kindness, compassion, and wisdom. But wonder is also ambiguous. For along with our experience of wonder, there is also the action of wondering. Wondering, for instance, how I may have made a metal birdcage disappear. And it was this second kind of wondering that led me as a child to become a kid magician in the first place because I wondered how things worked. I wanted to figure it out. And this was a, a wondering and a wanting to figure out which led not just to magic, to many, but to many other kinds of questions and explorations. It's something that I explore in The Safety of Edges. This is called Saying Grace. At our first house on 39th, the willow that wept could clog up a pipe in the sewer beneath us. If it rained, the water backed up through the drain, carrying old shit to the feet of my father. I could see how he felt when he showered before work. So one night before dinner, when we each shared a prayer, I prayed for what I wanted, not knowing how to say it. Dear God, I said, praying, my hands held before me, please make the toilet feel better. <laughs> my mother and my father chuckled at their son, who felt a little sheepish, but also understood. And my family all laughed at the prayer for the toilet and did feel better for a time. <laughs> Something I've found is that poetry and prayer are kin, because they can both address the unseen, the invisible. They both have and make room for other ways of knowing. Insight. As a child, I walked through our house in the dark, eyes closed, keeping out all the light. Lamps in the street Stray beams from other houses, the glow of city clouds at night. Nothing to dull the emptying darkness beyond even the darkness I could see. 
I wanted to see with my hands, my body, my memory of space, of time between places. Here, the door. Here, the doorway. Here, the chair, the dining room table. Here, the hutch whose edge I could reach, reaching out and reaching out, taking the sharp corner in my hand. In some ways, it's a wonder that I'm here at all, sharing these poems with you, because for a period of my life, my adolescence and my early 20s, poetry was something I didn't really get. I wasn't even sure there was anything to get. Now, part of this, I think, had to do with the way that poems were taught to us or tended to be taught to us in school as a kind of puzzle that you had to figure out. But another part of it was simply my own process of wondering and questioning everything. And this led, uh, in my case, to a kind of an almost obsession with meaning and with a very kind of narrow and literal-minded meaning, which is perhaps why I had to travel all the way around to the other side of the world, to South India, to discover what has been, for me, the secret of poetry. I was teaching at a college in the city of Madurai in Tamil Nadu, and I was studying the Tamil language because I wanted to be able to speak with people and because I wanted to live in a village and, and there would be no English in the village I wanted to live in. And Tamil, like many traditional languages, has very distinct written and spoken forms. So you can learn one and not be able to understand or read or speak the other. And so I thought learning to speak Tamil would be plenty of work for me. But one day, my Tamil teacher, the late Dr. K.V. Ramakodi, suddenly announced that we were going to learn to read and write. To which I said, Sir, that's a wonderful idea. I'm not sure if I... Um, I think I have my hands full. I'm not sure I'm up to it. It's what I said more or less in my broken Tamil still. And he said, When you return to your country, you are going to write us letters, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir, of, of course, of course. And you will want to be able to read our replies, won't you? Well, yes, sir, of course. Good. We'll begin tomorrow. And we began by reading the government school readers from pre-KG, basically kindergarten, preschool, all the way up through the equivalent of high school. We read everything except for the poems in the book, which was a great relief to me. But the reason he did that was because he didn't like any of the poems. And when he thought I was ready, he said, okay, now we're going to start reading poetry. And I thought, oh yes, that thing I don't get. But I trusted my teacher, and we began reading the poems of a 12th century Tamil woman, poet, and saint named Abvayar. Each day we would read a poem or two, very short four-line poems. He would explain them to me word by word, and I would more or less get the gist of the poem, and then he would have me memorize them, all of them. And because I couldn't yet really understand the poems directly, all I could do as I memorized the poems was listen. And that was the great key, the great opening for me. Because listening to these poems, I could start to hear that they sound good. Here are two lines that I still remember jumping out at me. One went like this. 
near mail yeratirkaner. I delighted in this balance between the near and the ner. And this rhythmic thing that happened on the third beat, near mail yeratirkaner. Years later, here's how I translated that poem in Give, Eat, and Live. Good done to a man of character. Letters etched in stone. Good done to a man who lacks ethics and love. Letters traced upon water. Nir mel yer Here's another line that jumped out at me. Pullukumange posiumam. It's also a line about water, but it's a different kind of water. It's the water that runs from the great open agricultural well and down a channel to the fields where rice or other crops may be growing. Perhaps you can hear the running water and the sounds and the words themselves. Pullukumange posiumam. The water that runs from the well to the rice, also waters the wayside grass. If on our old earth there walk one upright soul, for their sake, everyone receives rain. It's an old Tamil idea that because people of goodness are, this world is and continues to be. And it's an idea that becomes all the more meaningful because of the music with which Abayar gives it to us, graces us with. So Abayar, in cahoots with my Tamil teacher, set me on what became a very long apprenticeship to language, to poetry, to words, and to the music of words. And most recently, this took me to the fifth century, more or less, poet Thiruvalluvar, or Valluvar, who wrote one of the great masterpieces of Tamil poetry and philosophy, the Kurul, or the Tirukurul. And I thought I would share just one poem from that translation. A little taste. The book has 133 chapters. Each chapter has 10 very short verses, a line and a half, more or less on some particular topic. So there's a chapter on rain. There's a chapter on knowing the right time to do something. There's a chapter on um, the way we lie to each other when we're in love with each other. And then there's chapter nine on hospitality. Verse 83. And I'll preface this by saying that hospitality in Tamil is not simply welcoming someone into your home and, and feeding them. Of course, it is that. But it's also an existential stance, if you will. It's a welcoming and a cherishing of someone that you may never have been, you may never know, you may never have known or seen before. Verse 83. The life that cherishes strangers as they come never falls upon ruin. It's a verse about the paradoxical possibility of abundance. And it is also a verse fiercely against fear, against the fear of insufficiency, against the fear of scarcity. And so I've learned from the old and great Tamil poets, men and women, to listen more fearlessly and to be awake to the wonders that are waiting for us to find them, to see them, 
to hear them all around us. Stop. At 3rd and Seneca, waiting for the bus, watching the sign saying the minutes remaining, I'm standing in the nowhere between now and arrival, knowing nothing but the passing of numbers on a screen. How many times have I waited at this stop, watching the dark buses moving and then stopping? Another in the distance passes another bus, passing another light between streets and buses. What else to do but wait? I ask it out loud. What else can I do? And a voice in my head says, stop. There is more here now than you know. So I stop and I turn from the sign in the distance and suddenly above me, lit by a street light, I see a city tree beginning to awaken, its branches a dark etching beneath a dark sky full of angles and corners, no two alike, each limb below unfolding new leaves, and above and above tiny white buds as fully here now as they will be in bloom and as tiny white petals when they fall. Returning to the stop, the streets turn to me, filling and overflowing with new budding trees, Trees I didn't see till I saw what I missed, waiting at the stop without stopping. This next poem takes its title from a word that Socrates used to describe his experience of a quiet voice guiding him this way or that way as he made his decisions. And Socrates and his description of that experience reflected something to a certain Mohandas K. Gandhi in his youthful explorations of writing and thoughts from all over the world. The word is daemon. Gandhi did nothing without hearing it speak and sometimes heard nothing and dared to do nothing despite the many things he may already have done. Each day by listening the battle was won, and not with any weapons, but by staying himself, saying his word, which said no more than he heard. Socrates once said that philosophy begins with wonder, and something that people who knew Gandhi often remarked about him was that somehow he had managed to keep alive his own childlike sense of wonder. People often use that phrase. They said he was not childish, but childlike, that he had a vital connection to that part of his life and experience. Which I thought of when I saw um, one of the people in the next poem. Hushed. In the library, the young girl, her mother checking email, sang a little song she was making in the moment. It wasn't being sung for her mother or herself. 
It wasn't being sung for anyone around her. It was only being sung for the sake of being sung, her heart and mouth moving in the movement of the song. And I knew who she was beyond what I knew. She was me as a child singing to be singing. And I knew that her mother in the library would stop her, would tell her to be quiet. How could she not but oh, for the singing that seeks no applause and is ours even in the silence. One of the things that poetry, or at least the kind of poetry that matters to me, can do is bring our experience of wonder together with the action of wondering into a greater whole, a greater wholeness, which offers itself to us as song. So I wanted to conclude this part of the program with a song that I wrote for the show that my husband David Milkey and I wrote together called The Driftwood Bridge, an offering of story and song. This particular song is called A Little Magic. A little magic, a little wonder, waiting just for you. A little music, a little singing out loud when skies are blue. A little hidden secret where others may not see it. You want them all to see it, but they may never see it. But that's okay. As long as you can see it every day The way the spiders weave their webs and catch the morning dew The way your father laughs at night when all the work is through The way the raindrops look like tears upon the window pane The way your mother sings a song and calls you by your name a little magic, a little wonder, a little hidden, a little under, a little sunshine, a little thunder for you. Thank you. Thomas. This is another passage from Body and Earth, Thomas's book with C.F. John. A song can move too far from the body. When we hear somebody sing, we enter the presence of their body, the presence of the music in their body. The song flows from their mouth to fill the air between us and enter our bodies by way of our ears. Music isn't simply something to hear, it is also something to do. Singing can carry us through sorrow or give voice to our gladness. It can make us more present to one another and to ourselves. We're honored to welcome Ibrahim Arsalan to the stage. Ibrahim is a jelly or storyteller whose instrument is the African kora. 
Ibrahim studied traditional griot in Mali. In West African society, the jelly preserved ancient stories and traditions through song throughout the generations. They are believed to have deep connections to spiritual, social, and political powers. Please welcome Ibrahim. Good evening, everyone. of what we normally do. In older societies, particularly in Africa, hospitality binds the society together. The traditional jali don't sit in one place for too long. The term for them is which is the term for a particular type of songbird. So just as they sing and their music is heard far and wide, they also must travel throughout the society widely. They see the different territories, the different countries, the different languages spoken by the different people, their condition. And they would bring that knowledge to other territories and then ultimately back to the emperor and to the governing council, the Bada where decisions could be made on how to resolve issues. It was always understood when a jali was coming, it was a blessing. And people would extend hospitality. But in this particular village, people were busy. A drought was striking. And the jali was arriving. And when he arrived, the people, one by one, sent him along, talk to this person, talk to that person, and finally he comes to the house of this one man, a poor farmer who did not have much. And the man sends him away and says, I, I can't give you hospitality. Times are too desperate. The Jale looked at the situation and knew that a man is ultimately overridden by his wife. So he approached the home of the man permission from the Muso Kantiki. That's the term we have for the head woman. Even a husband must ask permission before he can enter his home from his wife. He enters and begins to play a song, a long, the song Beloved, this song. And he begins singing beautifully. Kelemani 
to the man's house, bringing with them food and their goods, and begin before long, a party strikes up, and by the time the man returns home to his, from his farm, from his daily works, he noticed the entire village is there partying, and what was a poor shanty now was filled with the abundance of the entire town. Everyone ate, people sang, shifting into the conversation with the poet section of our program now. Um, as you uh, walked in this evening, you may have been given a slip of paper with a pencil, so if you have uh, questions for Thomas, uh, please go ahead and write them out, and I'll be sort of circulating the room and collecting them so that after the conversation with Melanie and Thomas takes place, uh, we'll be able to go through some of those questions from you all. So Melanie Noel will be uh, facilitating the conversation with Thomas tonight. Melanie is the author of The Monarchs and the chapbook A Ringing, forthcoming from Good Morning Menagerie. Her poems have also appeared in Spiral Orb, La Norda Specialo, the Seattle Review of Books, Guest, Thermos, and the Arcadia Project. She co-curated Apostrophe, a dance, music, and poetry series, and curated Impala, and created Impala, a reading series that took place in her grandmother's car. 
as Redmond's fifth poet laureate, she collaborated with designer Kate Widows on Above Inside, a project exploring the gesture of the wave. She is an editor based in Seattle and sometimes leads experiential workshops meant to invoke synesthesia, a condition that causes the brain to process data in the form of several senses at once. Um, please welcome Melanie up to the stage. Beautiful. It's so beautiful to hear your voice <laughs> in all of its forms. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so, Thomas, <laughs> I, um, I, ha I have uh, a lot of questions. Um, uh, one that was coming up as I was reading your work, I really admire the poems about um, Tahoma um, or the mountain, Mount Rainier, right? Some yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I was wondering. Um, so there were three poems in this in your book, "The Safety of Edges," that I saw, um, and I wondered if you could just describe your relationship to the mountain. Well, I, growing up in Seattle, the the mountain was of uh, the the whole fabric in which uh, my sister and I grew up, and our family was living. Um, one of my first uh, most vivid memories of it was of seeing it, this will be familiar to many of you, I'm sure, seeing it seeming to float above the horizon. It seemed to be, because there's a layer of clouds, right, obscuring the bottom, and the clouds obscuring the bottom match the clouds behind it. And I thought, what is this mountain floating in the air? I thought it was the most magical thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and so my, my first association was, was the floating mountain. Um, it was also a place that my, uh, my family would go camping. Um, my parents and my sister and I would go to, um, to paradise or to sunrise and we'd camp. And, and so it also, there was being in the presence of, of the mountain and family at the same time, which was you know, out of the usual grind of school and, and homework and all of these things. Uh, so it was also a, a kind of refuge, a kind of refuge or even retreat from the ordinary into, you know, just the extraordinary, the wildflowers, the, just the, the size of the mountain, the, the solid presence of the mountain. Um, and more recently, living on, on Vashon Island, there's the crossing from Fauntleroy to, to Vashon. Uh, and on a clear day, you can get a glorious view of the mountain. Um, but it struck me one day, crossing the ferry, that the mountain was there whether or not I could see it. <laughs> that, uh, I mean, I can appreciate the glory of seeing it there on a clear day, but on a day when I could see nothing, mm -hmm. I could still see the mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, and that became important to me as a kind of, well, it, it may sound strange, but as, as, as the mountain being a kind of teacher. Mm -hmm. um, in the, the presence of, of the mountain. That's how I've taken, um, that's where I'm, uh, I am with the mountain these days, mm -hmm. trying to appreciate its presence, whether or not I actually see it. Would you read the, the, the poem, Old Teacher? Sure. Is that, is um, that... Can I borrow your book? Absolutely, yeah. That's... <laughs> Another thing that fascinated me as a kid was how you could be moving from one place to another and something in the far distance would seem to move with you. I, I love that. Um, and that's part of what I'm evoking or what I'm uh, experiencing, I think, in the poem. Old teacher. 
It's the same mountain I've known from the water, white and majestic, solid and floating. But still, as I travel from one here to another, I see her all at once between trees in a valley. How could my breath not fly from my body, a silent, effervescent song of praise? As solid as the earth, as stone, as hardest rock, and yet moving with an ease unknown among men, save men and save women who have learned to keep moving and stay still at the very same time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I wonder, you, you know, you bring up teachers, and I'm curious if you would talk about some of your other teachers, um, or even, you know, we had talked about um, Renee Levon with magic, but also you have poems for Hayden Kruth and Wendell Berry, um, and I know your teacher uh, and co-translator, Dr. Ramakoti Cody. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, who who else uh, is a part of your lineage and? influences you and how? I've been very lucky to have many extraordinary teachers. Um, some of them have been living teachers, like my, my teacher, the late Dr. K.V. Ramakodi, uh, who was the kind of teacher who would not only kindle your excitement, your interest, your enthusiasm, but keep pushing you and pushing you and pushing you passed far beyond what you may have expected to be learning. Well, that was my experience. But there have also been teachers far removed from me in time and place. So Abvayar has been one of my teachers. Another uh, important teacher is Juan Rulfo, the extraordinary Mexican novelist, really a poet, a poet in prose, um, who, to whom I apprenticed myself by translating his masterpiece, Pedro Paramo, and translating and translating and working on that for, uh, that's been 15 more or more years now, um, working on the translation and then trying to get it published um, because of legal things involved with the publication of that. Um, and teachers as well uh, in, uh, in my family, my parents, my grandparents. I remember my grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, once chiding me for she told me something, I said, oh, I know. And she says, don't say you know. <laughs> um, and as a kid, I was you know, a, little, a little riled by that. But, but I've taken from that um, the possibility of a greater ease with not having to know, um, with not having to be the one that knows all the time. I also, uh, particularly from my, from my grandmother and my, my great-grandmother, uh, um, learned a reverence for the dead, for honoring the dead. Um, every, when we would go to visit my, uh, my grandparents on Maui, where my mother was born and grew up, uh, the first thing we would do before, before eating, before unpacking, before doing anything, was to go into the, the guest bedroom and go to the butsudan, the, the family shrine, and there would be the image, the picture of the most... Uh, recently deceased member of our family, which I took to sort of stand in for all of our our ancestors. And we would offer senko, incense, and, and there would be food and water and tea. Um, 
And I, I grew up with that uh, experience, not as an everyday experience, uh, but as an experience connected to, to our lives um, and to our family. And so she, and in fact, you know, that whole family has been a kind of teacher to me, as, as, as has my father's family um, in their own ways. Um, so those are some of the people who have, people who've been important to me and also places. I mean, I mentioned, we, we talked about Tahoma, Mount Rainier. Um, one other place I'll mention is there's a village in South India, uh, outside the city of Madurai. It's called Valayapatti. Um, and it's a village where I went uh, to live for a year and a half, and then I've, I've been connected with the village ever since. That entire village has taught me things um, that have been deeply important to me. Um, most of these villagers are not, they're not literate, they're not... Um, well-schooled, uh, and many of them were extraordinarily wise, um, and I've learned from their wisdom. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Do you. Can you give an example of something from that village? I mentioned earlier, and Ibrahim also spoke about hospitality. Um, I remember one moment I had been living there for a year and a half, and I was about to leave. I was on a fellowship, and it was coming to a close, and I was leaving, and I had no idea whether I would return or not. Uh, and I, uh, and, and the house, I had rented a house, very small room, from a family, and this family gradually became my, my family. So my landlord, who had become my appa, my father, uh, uh, was very angry with me because of some little misunderstanding that was, in, in, way, in some ways, very inconsequential. But I was preparing to leave the very next day. I was quite distraught. And we were in the middle of the, in the, um, the walkway in the village. And I was about to burst into tears. And I didn't want to burst into tears in the walkway because everyone, you know, it, it was a very public, uh, not public, very co uh, community, uh, co uh, common space. And then my appa, my village appa, saw this. And something in him shifted. And he said, only if we sit down and eat from the same banana leaf, will this all be okay? <laughs> banana leaves, you would you, you serve guests, uh, or if you're having a wedding, you would serve the, the rice uh, and the food on a banana leaf. Uh, and so we literally, and he didn't have a banana leaf round, but they, they got one, and we went into his house, and we sat down, we had the one banana leaf, and we literally ate off of the same leaf together, mm -hmm. um, which somehow helped... Uh, ease all of the emotions and thoughts that was going around in both him and me and the people around us as I was preparing for this, this departure and, and um, trying to figure out what would come next in my relationship with the village. Hmm. Oh, what a beautiful story. <laughs> it makes me think of uh, the fact that you uh, also uh, perform in a restaurant on first Fridays <laughs> on Vashon, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. At the May restaurant? May, uh, May Kitchen and Bar. May Kitchen and Bar, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I was curious about if you could talk about what is it like to perform in that context. I think about it as being, I've, gotten to, I've been able to see it too, but it's a very nourishing context. There's mm -hmm. a lot of beautiful, right? In your conversation with C.F. John, it's like very much about, um, there's a lot you write about gen talk about generosity. And, yeah. uh, I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, May Kitchen is a very special place. Um, it was begun by a woman named May, and, and she uh, had had a restaurant in Wallingford, actually, also called May's, a uh, popular uh, 
restaurant there that she ran with a business partner and then um, the business partner sold it to her and then she was running it single-handedly. She decided she didn't like that. She sold the whole thing and said, no more restaurants for me. Uh, and then moved to Vashon and was doing something quite different. And then one day she had a dream. And in this dream, she and some of her girlfriends are walking through a kind of garden. And there's a kind of a little water fountain of sorts and there's a stairs and she goes into this building and then her friends disappear, as friends do in dreams. And she's looking around this building. Uh, it's a kind of gathering place, a restaurant of sorts. And, and she wants to know, for whatever reason in the dream, you know, whose restaurant is this? And she's looking around. There's nobody to ask. Whose restaurant is this? And then she sees a statue of King Rama V, which is a particularly beloved Thai king. And seeing the statue of Rama V, she thinks, oh, I guess this is my restaurant. <laughs> and about two weeks later, the space where the restaurant um, is uh, opened up and, and she uh, leased it and they spent two years transforming that space into what she saw to the extent that they brought walls from two or three old style uh, country Thai houses across the ocean to redo the walls inside. So you enter this from the outside. It's a very nondescript place, but you enter into this world and you, you are in her dream. So it's a very special place. Mm -hmm. I met um, uh, the co-owner uh, of the restaurant in the laundromat. Mm. He was washing the, the napkins, and they were very distinct napkins because they had chickens on them. Chickens and eggs, they were from the quilting shop on, on Vashon. Um, and I noticed the napkins, I recognized the napkins, and I asked, you know, are you connected to the restaurant? And he said, well, yes, I am, I'm one of the, I'm the co-owner and I we got to talking and I mentioned that in among other things among the things that I do is, is magic and and he remembered that and then maybe a year year and a half later he called me up out of the blue said hey you want to come and do some magic for a, a holiday gathering and I was busy that evening and I said that's a lovely idea I'm, I'm sorry I can't do it but um, we got to talking and at this point I had I had gone through a kind of strange relationship with magic. I was a kid magician, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it, and then school sort of took over and it sort of took the back seat. Um, and didn't return or re-enter my life until I moved back to the Pacific Northwest. And in fact, didn't return until my sister invited me. She was at the time the farmer's market manager on Vashon Island and she said, for the Harvest Festival, we really need a magician. Mm -hmm. So I did a, a little thing for the Harvest Festival and then I started doing it. I thought this is not a bad day job to have mm -hmm. among other day jobs. Um, uh, and then this evolved to something where I started to combine poetry and magic together. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so um, Tom uh, from May Kitchen invited me to, to do something there, and I'd never ever considered performing in a restaurant. There's actually a genre among magicians, of restaurant magicians, and you sort of do a mm -hmm. thing, and I didn't want to do anything conventional. But because I liked the place, and because I liked um, the practice of hospitality that they try to embody, um, I thought, well, if there's any place in the world I could do something, it would be here. So I invented a whole sort of series of, um, they're not really tricks, they're, they're kind of poetic, theatrical experiences, mm -hmm. which, and I used the, the magic as a kind of theatrical device um, to, to uh, awaken wonder. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things is to see in a tired 60-something gentleman see that a seven-year-old kid suddenly appear in their face, in their eyes, that unexpected moment of wonder. I love that. Yeah. Um, and I get to do that there. Yeah. Thanks for that description.
So one of our audience members would like to know if you could talk a little bit uh, more explicitly about the relationship between magic and poetry. That's a great question. And, and when I was, I had a, a wonderful Sunday morning breakfast with Melanie and, and, and she asked me a similar question. And what I found myself saying then and what I find myself wanting to say again now is that um, for me, poetry, especially the listening to poetry, takes us beyond what we normally see. Or perhaps better put, it reminds us of, of something we may know beyond what we um, uh, may normally think about. It, it awakens us to, I think, deeper um, parts of ourselves. Now, magic is not normally seen as, as doing that sort of thing. It's, it's especially in North America, it's a much more, um, it's often seen as a kid's thing and a, a kind of a, you know, a fun entertainment thing, and it can be that. Um, but for me, what interests me about magic now, as opposed to when I was a kid messing around with tricks, um, is how it can serve as a metaphor for the unexpected, um, the miraculous, the impossible, or the impossible seeming. Uh, I see it as, as a kind of, like I've said, a kind of a form of theater by which uh, we can also reconnect to sides of ourselves. Um, there's a, an Argentine magician uh, just died a couple years ago, named René Lavand. Very interesting guy. He, when I think he was nine or so, he lost his right arm in an automobile accident. Uh, uh, and he wanted so much to be a magician, and nobody could teach him, because all the magicians had two arms. And he could, so he reinvented classic effects and then made his own things, all with his left hand. And you watch him and you forget in like 30 seconds that he doesn't have two arms. Anyway, um, he was also somebody who interests me because he, he would have writers and poets write his, his, um, his words for him. Um, and he would weave in poetry into what he did. Anyway, he has a book, uh, the title that he wrote for magicians, but the title of the book was The Beauty of Astonishment. Um, and so what I, uh, I guess what I would say that can, that ties for me the art of poetry and the art of magic together um, is the possibility of beauty and astonishment. Beautiful astonishment and astonishing beauty. Thank you. So this is a two-part question. What do you feel is the most important experience of your life? And along with that, when did you realize your inspiration? <laughs> Well, the first part is um, the most important experience of my life uh, was meeting my beloved, meeting my uh, now husband, um, because it was something I didn't think would happen. I had kind of given up on finding uh, somebody, um, or at least I'd given up on trying so hard, <laughs> which is I did for a period of time. Um, because I went through a period when I moved to the, back to the, to the Northwest, back to Cascadia, and I did have a period of, of intense longing. Um, I was reading a lot of love poetry. Um, I was getting the love poetry in a way I hadn't before. 
Um, and I was getting things from this poetry, not you know, in English, but also there's a, a wonderful 8th century Tamil, another Tamil woman named Andar, and she writes poetry about um, the relationship between these uh, women and uh, a form of Krishna. And there are these extraordinary love poems, which are also devotional poems. And, and I had studied a cycle of 30 of these poems with my Tamil teacher. It was a very important cycle to him, and so I had learned that cycle. Um, and I, I had thought, you know, all this love stuff is nice, but you know, come on. <laughs> it can't really be like that. Uh, and then when it did happen for me, it really was like that. In fact, it was beyond like that. Um, it was one of the most profound experiences that I've ever known, this opening, um, this opening to the wonder of this person who is uh, and has been a touchstone for me um, of, of the wonder we can experience not just with our, our, our partner or our husband, our wife, our, our beloved, our friend, but also all kinds of relationships. The, um, the mystery that each of us actually is and how we can be witness to that. That's what that experience reminded me of. So the other part of that question, when did you realize your inspiration? My inspiration. I hope I realize it all the time. Um, I love that the word inspiration connects to breath, to intaking, in inspiring, and that spirit and breath, um, wind are all connected. And, and so uh, each day when I sit down to write, whether it's prose or poetry, it doesn't really matter, um, it never uh, ceases to be slightly terrifying in that I have no idea, I mean, I may have had a, an outline, I may have some plan of what I might want to say, but there's a kind of let, letting go and a kind of not knowing that I've been learning to open myself to, which is what I think is the opening to inspiration, to allowing the words or the impulse or the thought or the image or whatever it may be to lead me somewhere I didn't expect to go. Um, and so that's what, I, that's what I hope for and practice for each time I sit down to write. So your closing questions are, what do you think should be the role of poetry and the role of poet in our society? Hmm. Is this the last question? Or just, okay. This is the last one. <laughs> well, I have, I'll have two answers for that. Um, one thing that really struck me in South Indian, in Tamil Nadu, was how fully present poetry was. I mean, I mentioned this fifth century book that I've been translating. Verses of that book are displayed in every city bus up there. Um, uh, politicians quote poems. Um, and I guess I would say offhand that what I would hope for from poetry in public life is the possibility of a public life which is not merely public, but which is also um, deeply felt and 
rooted in a deeper experience of what it means to be us here now. But perhaps a better answer is a poem that I wrote for the Seattle City Council, which I was asked to, to there was a program, um, it's called Words Worth, and the idea was before certain meetings or committee meetings for the Seattle City Council, there would be uh, a poem to start things off in a certain uh, way. And I think that was actually a, a good step <laughs> toward that sort of thing. And so I thought about this question about the relationship between poetry and politics and, and what I could offer. So uh, I, wrote, I wrote this poem, and I think maybe that may be um, a good answer for the last question. Let's see. So this is a poem called Council. How do we build a city, a safe refuge for many people, a place of many places where many people want to dwell, when the many may have many ideas about the city, the people and the places the place might become? So many that at times it can tear them apart, pulling at the fibers till the fibers start to fray till what had felt whole and truthfully woven begins to look ragged and not just around the edges, where the words that once carried music in their meaning have ceased to carry anything at all. What then can we do to bring it back together to bind the many pieces without the pieces feeling bound. In ancient Tamil Nadu, land of Tamil, the great kings of three kingdoms held counsel with poets, learned men and women who advised them in song, calling them on their errors, praising them for their hearts teaching them always the root of all art, the courage to listen and then act. So listen, listen, listen to the people, to their pains and to their plans and to the voice great within us, rising up and rising out, showing us the next step, the next way, the next word, the next wonder that will make the poem once again, piecing the many pieces into more than just many, where everyone is welcome, where everyone is heard, where everyone finds shelter in the shelter we make from the words that weave us together. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Melanie. We're going to invite Ibrahim up to the stage for one last closing set of music.
last description to the question reminded me of something I was taught. Initiation into the tradition. I was told that amongst the Dagra, the Minyanka, and other small, smaller ethnicities of the Mende. initiation to adulthood, children start to reach the age of 14 and 15. They are presented with riddles, riddles which are themselves rhymes and poems and proverbs. But the first of these riddles translates to the essence of words is silence. The child is expected to go off into the wilderness, sit before a tree, and contemplate the meaning of this. Their rite of passage doesn't truly begin until they can answer this question accurately. What does that mean? What they realize is that the meaning of words is formed in the mind, in the silence. Once they answer this question, then begins the exercises of breathing. Focusing upon the words, focusing on the vibration that the thought forms within the body, and then simply breathing and allowing that vibration to carry a sound from your throat. magic, ashe, medicine, the different terms for it in the West African tradition. Begin the moment you open your mouth to speak. The moment you draw emi, the breath within, and release it. And the difference between all of us and those who knowingly wield magic is just that they are aware of it and have practiced the technique. And so immediately after that lesson, the children learn to engage in these musical, rhythmic, rhyming games. They challenge each other. They insult one another. They insult the skills, even some of their family members and ancestors. They praise one another. that tradition was carried over with the people across the Atlantic and 
while the books were burned and the knowledge may have been lost. The tradition of the oral stayed in the mind and in the heart and continued forward until it eventually manifested itself in another way today we call hip-hop. We call blues. We call jazz the cutting heads and the jazz tradition. And all of these things collectively work to preserve a people through the worst of times and allow them to create beauty out of ugliness. And what greater magic is there than that? But I know you got a hit list of misters who dissed So now I can't have your big lips Just wanna love you for real though But when you come to work you wear your still toes So you can't feel no access to your seal So and so I gotta pay the bill though And get fed, barely have the meal slow Girl, yeah, love is all I'm really here for Wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end in the morning, yawning, cops watching, wait to kick the dope in. Cause I know I got them dope pens and the dope ends, so my enemies got no friends. Yeah, it don't end. Uh, see, me, I always been a thinker. See, you telling me we gon' sink, uh, don't compute in my brain. I don't just shoot, I'm careful of my aim, and I'll be shooting to you. Care for the same, on the same tree like some pairs. I'm just saying, we all have prayers for the same. Already there is the plane, cop you a ticket, have you a visit to where this is. First, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then. But you're the only reason I hurt. You're the only thing I need on this earth then You're the only reason I hurt Ralph Rain Yeah, yeah, yeah It's Ralph Rain 